Well, we want to welcome you tonight. Uh, good to see everybody again. And we're continuing our study on what the gospel is not. And I'm really excited because, uh, you know, this is such a crucial topic and we get feedback all the time. In fact, I got an email this week, in fact, from somebody I don't know, had never heard of them, but uh, they had posted on their website a scathing rebuke of me because I suggested you can get to heaven without doing good works. And they didn't like that. So, um, so it always uh, it always provokes people to think about what grace means and you know what the gospel uh, you know really is. And uh, so before I begin tonight, though, we're gonna in just a moment we're gonna review what we did last week and then very quickly and then get into the second of ten things the gospel is not. Um, but I wanted to mention uh, primarily for those that will watch this later online or are watching the live stream that uh, we are no longer using YouTube at Not By Works, uh, which means Plum Creek Chapel is not using YouTube because they kind of piggybacked on Not By Works' uh, technology. But uh, YouTube has censored uh, once again and banned more of my videos and just really been uh, pretty ugly. So all lives, but we were prepared for this, so we've been look, anticipating this coming down the pike for a couple, several months now, um, actually since last fall. So uh, all live streaming can be accessed directly from the Not By Works website or the Plum Creek Chapel website. So if you go to either website, right there on the home page on the menu, you'll see live stream. You can't miss it. Click live stream. It'll take you to a page on our home screen, on, on our websites rather, that will be live streaming if we're live streaming, and it won't uh, if we're not. If, if you go there during the week when we're not doing anything or I'm not speaking somewhere, across the country it'll just be a player and it'll, it'll say no no live stream right now um, so no links to YouTube no links to any other third-party places like Facebook or whatever we're doing everything in-house uh, which is pretty nice but um, you know I want you to ask yourself as you think about big tech and YouTube uh, you know censoring us what are they afraid of that's the question that I have I mean why are they banning not by works ministries videos i mean what's so problematic about like in this the last video well they've been two this week but the one before last was uh, i quoted uh, a medical doctor a spinal surgeon person who was president of a major medical association of doctors and physicians and yet they banned it they said that was wrong <laughs> so I, I don't get it um but I will tell you this, when big tech's false claims are exposed to the light of truth, they have no answer. They have no argument, nothing they can say. All they can do is censor. That's their only, that's their only response. So make no mistake, whenever you see censorship, you know the truth is being suppressed. Uh, so we don't want them to win. We want to continue to get the gospel out there. Um, I know our YouTube channel was reaching thousands. There were a lot of people that may not know the Lord that watched videos. We have hundreds of videos up over the last several years. Um, but, you know, I can't help it. If they're going to shut me down, they're going to shut me down. And uh, you just need to ask yourself why. I mean, if their arguments, big tech's arguments, would uh, withstand the scrutiny of truth, then what do they have to be afraid of, right? If, they can, if, they, if their arguments are better and if their facts are more accurate, great, let them stand. But uh, if ours were so wrong, they, would, they wouldn't stand. But instead, they want to censor it and shut it down. So just uh, be in prayer for us as we make this transition. Again, we saw the train headed down the tracks for some time, and, but it's never easy when it finally happens. Uh, 
it's mostly just a logistical thing, just taking the time now to kind of relearn some new software, new systems, and uh, but we're really, really pleased with where we've landed and all of the streaming is now again done directly in-house through our website uh, or the church website at uh, notbyworks.org or plumcreekchapel.org. All right, so we are talking here on Wednesday nights, uh, my favorite night of the week, by the way. Uh, good discussion, good uh, iron sharpens iron, and just some real meat when it comes to theology. About ten false understandings of the gospel, and last week we began with the gospel is not a commitment. I don't want to rehash that whole thing as easy as it would be uh, to do that, but we we pointed out that, of course, the Bible never uses the word commitment as it relates to how to have eternal life. Uh, even though we commonly say that all the time, I committed my life to Christ and that's how I became a Christian. The Bible does not use that language and it sends the wrong message because eternal salvation is not about what we do for Christ, it's about what He's done for us. It's a free gift and no amount of commitment on our part, no matter how earnest or strong or determined or sincere, can play any part in overcoming the penalty of sin. Only the blood of Christ can do that and we receive the payment made on our behalf by Christ when he died and rose again for our sins by faith. Uh, so it's not a commitment, and uh, we talked quite a bit about that. We also talked about the distinction between positional righteousness and practical righteousness. This is a, an incredibly important paradigm to really get your head around, although you don't see it taught a whole lot in churches today. Um, but the distinction between the biblical concept of justification and sanctification. Justification in Scripture refers to our being declared righteous the moment we place our faith in Christ. We are justified freely by His grace, Paul tells us in Romans 5.1. Um, so it's a forensic term. It's actually an accounting term. It means the debt has been paid. And when you place your faith in Jesus Christ, when you believe the gospel, the good news that Christ died for your sins and rose from the dead, in that very instant, you pass from death to life, as Jesus said, and you shall never face judgment, and you become born again, part of the family of God, declared righteous before a holy God, so forth and so on. That's justification. And that results in our position in Christ. We are positionally righteous, and nothing can ever change that. But the reality is, uh, our practical behavior does not always conform to our position in Christ. In other words, Christ is perfect. In Him there is no sin. If we are in Christ, ideally we want to uh, conform to the image of Christ. But it's self-evident that we don't do that. Not only is it self-evident, but more importantly, the Bible teaches that believers are not always perfect from a practical standpoint. We can cater to the flesh. We can produce fruit of the flesh. We can sin, to put it short, uh, simply. Paul describes this ongoing struggle in the life of a believer in Romans chapter 7 when he says, the things that I know I shouldn't do, somehow I always end up doing them. The things I know I should do, I don't do. O wretched man that I am, who will rescue me from this body of death? Until we reach heaven and are ultimately glorified, we're going to have this this struggle, and that struggle is called the sanctification process, uh, the progressive sanctification process. The term sanctification is used a couple of different ways in Scripture, but predominantly it refers to the ongoing process of being set apart in Christ-likeness. 
The term actually means set apart, and in the context of our uh, Christian walk, it means being set apart in Christ-likeness. So, whereas positional righteousness rescues us from sin's penalty once and for all, practical righteousness, as we walk by faith and not by sight, rescues us from sin's power. Both, of course, are accomplished by faith. We don't get saved by faith and then become mature by just working hard and trying harder and all of that in the flesh. We still have to live our lives by faith. We talked about that extensively this past Sunday at Plum Creek in our message on Hebrews chapter 12. And if you've not watched that, I encourage you to watch that video, The Life of Faith, and what that looks like. Um, but the, the justification process is commonly what we talk about as salvation. When we just use that term, we mean, when did you get born again? When did you trust Christ? And then, but the sanctification process is what we commonly refer to as discipleship. That is, following Christ. Uh, following Christ doesn't save anybody. We demonstrated that last Wednesday when I pointed out several examples in Scripture of people called disciples who clearly were not believers, and the Bible tells us they weren't believers. We're not speculating. Uh, thinking of Judas there, for example. So no one gets saved because they followed Christ. Some people follow Christ out of curiosity. I mean, a person could be a complete atheist, a complete pagan, um, decide after maybe reading a book by some Christian author that, you know, Jesus was a pretty cool dude. He had a lot of nice things to say. I think I'm going to follow him. I think I'm going to become a disciple of him and sort of do the things that he did. And that doesn't make him a Christian. You don't become a Christian unless you've by faith trusted in Jesus Christ and him alone, by the way, there's an exclusivity there, as the only one who, can, who paid your penalty for sin and can give you the gift of eternal life. So these are two different things. The goal is, of course, to be both. Uh, we, salvation is not the same thing as discipleship. But once you've placed your faith in Christ and become born again, the goal is then to follow him. And that's where commitment comes in. Commitment is something that every believer should strive for. Every day we ought to evaluate and say, hey, how committed am I to Christ today? Uh, you know, what am I doing for the cause of Christ? How am I making a difference in this world? That's commitment. But that's not how you get saved. You get saved as a free gift uh, by faith. So we talked about how our practice in life should reflect our position in Christ. That's the goal. When it doesn't, it does not mean that you're not a Christian. It could mean that. It could mean that. So let, let's, let's pause for a second and just clarify. Uh, when you see someone living a sinful life, and I mean sort of abject sin, not the kind of uh, sins that we might commit every day in terms of sins of the heart, lust, uh, pride, anger, jealousy, covetousness, those types of things, but I just mean someone who, whose life is characterized by sin. More often than not, people have been conditioned in the church, based on you know years of bad teaching from a Reformed Calvinist perspective, to conclude hastily that person is not a Christian. And what I'm suggesting is that they might not be a Christian, but their eternal destiny is no way determined by their behavior. Therefore, we cannot jump to a hasty conclusion about whether they're going to heaven or not simply because of their behavior. Uh, salvation is by grace through faith. Grace, by definition, is unearned favor. Jesus paid it all. So, uh, you know, there are no sins that, a believer, that an unbeliever can commit that a believer might not also commit if he's catering to the flesh. So, 
Again, you see someone living a sinful life, they very well may not be a believer. But we don't want to jump to that conclusion. Because there but by the grace of God go I. And, and, and we've all known people who, even though they were believers, drifted away from the Lord, backslidden, and their lives began to be characterized by complete ungodliness. The Bible gives us examples of that. We could think of Saul in the Old Testament. We could think of John the Baptist, who died in unbelief, died questioning whether Jesus is the Son of God. Are we to assume that he wasn't a believer the whole time he was pronouncing the coming of Christ? No, he's in heaven today. But he didn't finish well. He didn't finish strong. And uh, the goal is to finish strong. The goal is that to make sure our practice in life reflects our position in Christ. But these issues have nothing to do with whether or not we're going to heaven. Going to heaven is a matter of justification, of being positionally in Christ by faith. Once that happens, the new nature comes alongside the old nature. They do battle, as Galatians 5 tells us. The flesh thus against the spirit, the spirit against the flesh. The two are contrary to one another. And our goal is to walk after the spirit so we won't fulfill the lust of the flesh. In fact, I think we looked at this last week. I should check so I can put it on the screen. Um, yeah, I didn't, I didn't have it on the screen last week. But if you turn to Galatians chapter 5, I want to show you an interesting verse that is one of many uh, that really represent a problem, a serious problem for a Reformed a Calvinistic approach to the Christian life. Galatians chapter 5, I just mentioned uh, verses 16 and 17, where the flesh lusts against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. But skip down to verse 25. Galatians 5, verse 25. Did I say 6 a minute ago? Anyway, it's Galatians 5, verses 25, verse 25. If we live in the Spirit, and the word if in Greek is actually the word since. You can tell from the construction that he means since here. And mo some modern English translations actually translate it that way. I'm reading from the New King James. But if or since we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. Now, that's a command, but think about the implications of that. What this verse is saying, without saying it, is that it is possible to be alive spiritually, that is, born again, since we live in the Spirit, we're born again. Unbelievers don't live in the Spirit. They're not, they don't have the Spirit, right? But since we live in the Spirit, let us walk in the Spirit. So that tells us it's possible to be alive spiritually, but not walking in the Spirit. And that's the, that's the problem of a a Christian life, a Christian who's living in sin. So we want our practice in life to reflect our position in Christ. So any questions about a commitment before we move on to number two, which is the gospel is not a contract. Any questions about that or comments or thoughts? Okay, so obviously, as you see on the screen there, the second thing the gospel is not is the gospel is not a contract. A contract. A lot of people have the mistaken notion that the gospel is some type of bilateral contract where, you know, you sit down at the bargaining table with God and you're sitting across the table with him like you're negotiating a deal. And you say, okay, God, here's what I've got. You know, I'm going to be good. I'm going to promise to never do that. I promise to always do that. I'll go to church more. I'll give more money. I'll pray. I'll stop cussing. And, you know, all you make this contract. And God, finally, when he feels like you've gotten enough on your side of the ledger, says, okay, good, it's a deal. If you'll do all that, you've got a deal. And he reaches out his hand and you shake on it. 
and, and many popular evangelical pastors and teachers and authors and radio hosts describe the gospel in terms that make it sound distinctly like some kind of contract. And I'm going to give you some quotes now. This is our Wednesday night crowd, so I don't mind naming names. Um, but this first one is by one of the more well-respected pastors of our day. And by the way, when I quote these guys, please know that I'm not personally attacking them. I'm just giving you their own words and explaining why I believe they're dead wrong. I mean, I love them in the Lord, and I'm sure they're Christians. They're just wrong on this issue. And, uh, and I have a problem with that. Yeah. Well, yeah, you can probably assume that. Uh, so, yeah. Uh, but not as we go through this series, I'm going to quote at times different ones, and they may or may not be, you know, a Calvinist. But on this issue, the Reformed guys absolutely, they wouldn't call it a contract, of course, but they absolutely speak in those terms. So consider John MacArthur's statement here. This is from his book, Hard to Believe, page 93. And by the way, this quote, was so problematic even to the Calvinists that in the second edition of this book, they took it out. So if you go buy this book today, this quote won't be in there. But if you buy the first edition, it's in there. All right? So here's what he said. Salvation for sinners cost God his own son. No problem there, right? We can say a hearty amen to that. It cost God's son his life. Hearty amen, we say. But notice... It'll cost you the same thing. You've got to bring as much to the table as God did. Salvation, he says, notice, comes from a life lived in obedience and service to Christ as revealed in Scripture. It's the fruit of actions. Now just think about that. I mean, it's one thing to misspeak, but I mean, pervasive throughout MacArthur's teaching in all of his books, especially Gospel According to Jesus, Gospel According to the Apostles, Hard to Believe, all of these others, he, this is his view. This is not a matter of misunderstanding. I mean, he comes from a Reformed perspective that teaches that faith, salvation's by faith alone, they absolutely believe that, but they redefine faith to include bringing something to the table. You've got to pledge, promise, commit, you know, turn, all of those things. That's how they define faith. Well, I, I have a problem with that. Okay. Or consider Boyce. Boyce actually suggests that you come, if you're going to get saved, you actually have to have some type of vow like you would at the wedding altar. He suggests, this is from his own book, I, sinner, take thee, Jesus, to be my Savior and Lord, and do promise and covenant before God and these witnesses, to be thy loving and faithful disciple. How is that not a bilateral contract? How is that not seeking eternal salvation based on something I pro He even uses the word promise or pledge to do. Or John Stott. At its simplest, Christ's call was personal allegiance. He invited us to learn from him, obey his words, and identify themselves with his cause. So you have to understand, from a Calvinist perspective, they do not see a distinction, as we did, between justification and sanctification. Okay, So they would say, these two are equal. You cannot be a Christian if you're not following Christ. You cannot be a Christian if you're not following Christ. That's emphatic. They, they do not see a distinction of an unbelieving disciple or a believing non-disciple. 
In fact, in 1 Corinthians 3 and, and John's uh, commentary, John MacArthur's commentary, he suggests there's not three categories of there, natural, spiritual, and carnal, but two. That natural and carnal are the same thing. You're either a believer or not a believer. You cannot be a believer living in carnality. Not possible. Because no believer would do that. And if you're not living a life of godliness, you never were saved to begin with. That's their view. It's called perseverance of the saints. If you don't continually do good works, you were never saved to begin with. So Arminianism which is often viewed as the opposite of Calvinism, teaches you must do good works to be saved, and if you're not doing good works, you lose your salvation. Calvinism teaches you must do good works or you never were saved. But in either case, good works become the requirement for eternal life. And that's why the person that emailed me this week and posted a, a scathing criticism of me on their website uh, said the first thing they said was this guy believes you can get to heaven having never done any good works. And I said, uh, yeah, I mean, I didn't respond to him, but I'm thinking, yeah, that's right, because it's the blood of Christ on which I stand, not my good works. You know? Yeah. They would have had to condemn Jesus because Jesus told the thief on the cross he was going to heaven, yeah. and he never did good works. No, no, he didn't. That's right. Yeah, so, I mean, they just don't understand grace. I mean, it's just very difficult for people to, you know, to, to let... To accept the concept that Jesus truly paid it all. The human nature is such that we feel like we have to do something to get saved. Because think about it. God kind of wired us that way, which is what is, makes grace so amazing. But think back to creation. God made us in his image as people who desire to work. Okay? Uh, Adam had a job in the garden before the fall. He was naming the animals. He was tending the garden. That's part of human nature. And so, you know, you go through the ages and you just kind of, let's just look in our, in our day, a typical life. You know, you, you, you start out early on, you know, we've got six kids, so I can speak from personal experience. You know, you start out, uh, you know, earning a treat when you go on the potty, when you're potty training, right? Then you get a little older, you get some chores, and you earn an allowance, right? Then you go to school so you can earn a grade. Then you graduate from high school having earned a diploma so you can do what? Go to college and what? Earn a degree, right? Then you go to college and earn a degree so you can do what? Get out and get a job and what? Earn a living, so we are conditioned early on that it's all about what I earn. But the one thing people need more than anything in the world, the most important thing, which is forgiveness of sin and eternal life, you cannot earn. You can't earn it. It's nothing in my hand I bring simply to the cross I claim. Yeah? What scripture do these folks use to... So the question is, just to make sure it's picked up for the video, what scripture might people who hold that view use to defend their position? Well, that's a big question because we're speaking here of, you know, of Calvinism. And by the way, um, I'm going to answer your question at least minimally, but we have a DVD series that is extensive and, and quotes, you know, is very fair and reasonable to the Calvinists, quoting their views and their own words from 
you know, the five points of Calvinism, total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, and perseverance of the saints. Here's what they say, and then with each point, I go to the scripture and explain why that's not the case and where they've missed it. But in general, uh, you know, it's a lockstep program for them. You know, they, they have to take certain passages and bring their presupposition to the text. I call it the you know, the blame it on God view, because it's all God. You don't believe the gospel. God believes the gospel for you. you. In fact, you can't believe the gospel. One of the mantras of Calvinism is dead men can't believe. So faith is not even something that you do, even though 160 times the New Testament conditions eternal life upon faith. When Jesus said, whoever believes in me has eternal life, what he really meant was whoever God gives the gift of faith so that you can believe has eternal life. But they do not believe that all 7.5 billion people on the earth could believe the gospel, only the elect. So it starts with total inability, meaning that's why they define total depravity. You cannot believe the gospel. God then regenerates you, so regeneration comes before faith, whereas we believe the Bible teaches faith is the instrumental cause of regeneration. I believe the gospel, and in that instant I am born again, Titus 3, 5, not by works of righteousness which we've done, but according to his mercy he saved us, according to the regeneration of the Spirit. So, uh, and then, you know, once you're regenerated, which you, you have no part in it all, you're completely passive. God just chose you, and he didn't choose others, but he chose you. He regenerates you, and then involuntarily, whether you want to or not, you believe. So their view is you're, 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 a, you're totally depraved, which they define as totally unable. You're walking along, all of a sudden you get zapped, now you're regenerate, you didn't know it, but you are, and then the next thing you go, I'll believe the gospel, and it just happens, and you didn't do anything to cause it, you don't have a choice. So when they say it's unconditional, that's not true, because there is one condition the Bible consistently says from cover to cover we must do to have eternal life, and that's faith. But faith isn't a work, faith is just the means of receiving the gift, right? And, and when, if I were to hand you a present... And I said, hey, I've got a gift for you. And you take it. Would you perceive that as work? Man, I had to work really hard to get that. No, it's, I mean, you just, it's the way gifts are exchanged. You take the gift, right? You wouldn't consider that work. Same thing is true spiritually, except in the spiritual realm, we don't receive the spiritual gift with physical hands. We receive it by faith. And again, more than 160 times the New Testament says that. And I've got an appendix at the back of Getting the Gospel Wrong that lists every one of those. So for them... Because that's their system, and I know this is a long answer, but it's, it's a deep question. Because their view is, you know, we, we are simply passive agents and have no role to play, it goes full circle to if God forced you to believe, and they don't like that word forced, but let's face it, if you don't have a choice, it's forced, right? So they, every time they say, ah, he doesn't force you, I say, well, can an elect person reject the gospel? Well, no. Well, can a non-elect person believe the gospel? Well, no. Well, sounds kind of forced to me. I don't know what other word, what other word you want to use it. But anyway, because that's their view, you get all the way to the end, and then you are guaranteed to produce good works, because it's all God. God does it all. And, and of course, to which I say, well, do you ever sin? Well, yeah, I sin sometimes. Well, then how come God didn't guarantee perfection? I mean, that's, yay God, he guaranteed that every believer will produce some good works. Good for God, right? Uh, I don't, I, I just reject that whole notion. It's, it's, the sanctification process is a cooperative effort between our yieldedness to the Holy Spirit and the convicting work of the Holy Spirit. And if we quench the Spirit, that's biblical, 
I mean, that uh, biblical concept. We don't yield to the Spirit. We grieve the Spirit. We don't walk in the Spirit. We're not going to produce good works. So, uh, so anyway, so they would take verses, for example, when they say Christ only died for the elect, they would say, when 1 John 2, 2 says, He, Jesus himself, is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but the sins of the whole world, they would say, oh, that means the world of the elect. Of course, the text doesn't say that, but that has to be, it has to mean that for their uh, perception. Um, I'm speaking this fall at a conference where I'm speaking uh, on 2 Peter, I think it's 2 Peter 2. Um, let me find the passage here. Yeah, 2 Peter 2. And I can't wait to develop this message because I've referred to this passage often and, and I refer to it in uh, my presentation on Calvinism. And by the way, um, I think we have some of these at the resource table at the back. If you're watching this online, uh, you can just go to the Not By Works website and the online store and you can get it there. Um, but here in chapter 2 of 2 Peter, Peter describes those whom the Lord bought, which is the atonement, as being reserved for the blackness of darkness forever. That can only mean one thing, hell. So here you've got an example of people whom Jesus paid the price for ending up in hell. So the atoning work of Christ didn't save people, it just made people savable. We have to receive the gift. If I buy you a gift and pay for it, but you refuse to accept it, that's not on me, right? I mean, I can't force you to take the gift. But it was still bought and paid for, right? You know, And that's what happened at the cross. Jesus paid the sins for the whole world. For God so loved the world that he gave his son. And then some people receive that gift. Some don't. The top 10 reasons my newest book is all about uh, why would somebody reject such a valuable gift that's free? And I give 10 reasons that some people uh, end up in hell because they refuse to believe the gospel. So, uh, so then they go to you know a lot of other passages we could point to. Uh, you know when Jesus said, "If I be lifted up, I will draw all men to me." Uh, he, they think that means drag. You know, they forces you to come. You know, they they, they have they, you know a lot of different interpretations on different passages. But several hours here in this series that I, or at least two or three hours, I think it's five sessions. Each one's about forty-five minutes. Um, on this uh, topic. So, any other questions? Yeah, here and so, then up here. This idea of well, the gospel not being a contract. Yeah. I don't see the appeal of it being a contract because you would always be thinking, am I living up to the contract? Am I holding up my end of the deal? And when we sin, we know that we're not holding up our end of the deal. So there's so much doubt associated with this concept of the contract. Yeah, well, there should be. And remember, that's what I said last week about commitment, is that it completely destroys assurance, right? If you think your eternal destiny is based upon your commitment, then how can you ever be sure? And the same thing really applies to all of these, particularly the contract concept. But, you know, what's appealing about it in the flesh, again, is our natural inclination to want to do things. I mean, just on a physical, temporal realm... You know, we all can relate to sort of the awkwardness of being given a gift, right? I mean, it's one thing if it's your birthday or Christmas, but I just mean if someone just says, you know what, I just really appreciate you and I want you to have this gift. 
you know, it's hard sometimes, right? We just feel like, oh, no, I don't deserve this. But when it comes to eternal salvation and the gift of forgiveness is offered and we go, oh, I don't deserve this, God goes, bingo, that's precisely why I'm giving it to you. You don't deserve it and you can't earn it. But I, I think for some people there is an appeal there. And for, for the, those in the Reformed camp, and again, I'm, I don't want to be personal here. I'm not saying that they're ugly or mean or stupid or I'm not insulting their mother. Okay, they're good people. I just have an honest disagreement with them. And having been at, you know, Ligonier conferences and T4G conferences and Desiring God conferences, uh, I've interacted with a lot over 30 years. And, and there seems to be an incipient pride undergirding this notion that somehow I'm acceptable before a holy God, even though they know intellectually that they're still struggling with certain sins that are maybe secret or less, you know, open. But they look over here at this drunkard or this person involved in sexual immorality or whatever, and they say, oh, well, there's no way they can be a Christian because perseverance of the saints. You know, they must persevere in good works. And so I think underlying it, it's, it's, it's just, it's counterintuitive. It's not, you're, you, you're right, you would think that they would, you know, what would be the appeal of thinking that our salvation is based upon something we do in some part, either to prove it, like a Calvinist says, or to gain it in the first place, like an Arminian says. Um, you think that would be not appealing, but in a way it's sort of, is appealing because it, it sort of puts it in our control and it makes us create just like the Pharisees and scribes did in the first century. Um, you know, I'm not calling Calvinist Pharisees, but there is a, a correlation there. They were looking down their noses at, you know, the filthy, rotten, dirty Gentiles whom Jesus spent a great deal of time with, didn't he? Why do you think he did that? You know, he says, you know, I, I didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners. I, I didn't come to call the... It's not the healthy, that is, Israel, who thinks they're all high and mighty in their prideful self-righteousness, but the sick. And so he was trying to make a point. And, you know, you see this again and again. You see Jesus uh, in his earthly ministry emphasizing grace. Now, of course... The great doctrines of grace are expounded upon in Paul's epistles and the later epistles of the New Testament. But, you know, the scripture is consistent as a whole. And, of course, the Son of God himself in his three and a half year ministry exemplified grace again and again and again. And Matthew's gospel really uh, is a perfect illustration from chapter 1 to chapter 28 uh, as Matthew, under the inspiration of the Spirit, kind of put together these selected events from the life and ministry of Christ. He starts out, the first major sermon he records is the Sermon on the Mount, in which Jesus repeatedly tries to sort of rock the world of the Jewish scribes and Pharisees and self-righteous by saying, you know, uh, you, you know, right out of the bat, the Beatitudes, he says it's, you know, it's the poor and it's the meek and it's the humble that are going to, that, that God looks to more favorably not you guys that have dotted all your i's and crossed all your t's and he he goes on to say you know you may think you've never committed murder but have you hated well then you're guilty you may not have committed adultery but before you pat yourself on the back too quickly have you lusted see it's not what you do it's what's in the heart and then he goes all the way through then at the end at chapter seven of matthew he says sort of in a climax of the sermon not everyone who says to me lord lord will inherit the kingdom 
To some, he's going to say, I don't know you. So it's not about what you do. But what's interesting is right after that, in chapter 8 of Matthew, he then, the next encounter he records is with the centurion and the centurion's servant. A centurion's a Gentile, of course. And he commends the centurion for his faith. And he says, I've not seen such great faith in all of Israel. Well, what's the implication? You guys that think you have it all together don't get it. These guys that are humble and recognize they need help get it. And so, so I think, you know, again, I'm not trying to somehow psychoanalyze Calvinists, but you know, I just know from my own human nature, there's a certain appeal to feeling like I did it. You know, look what I did, right? Even little kids, you know, again, going back to just our innate nature, you know, you know, they ride the bike the first time without training. Was Daddy, I did it. Look what I did. And, and we want to have this sense of that we did something. So when they see people who are living in sin, uh, I mean, there are all kinds of logical problems with that mentality to begin with. First of all, you know, if, you, if, if a Calvinist saw Peter when he denied Christ not once, not twice, but three times, and as if that weren't enough, cursed Christ, Christ, and that's all they saw was that snapshot, they would absolutely, 100% of them, hastily say, well, that guy's not a believer when they saw Peter. So you need to recognize that you know, people go through ebb and flow in their spiritual journey, and, and we don't know what's in the heart. And so uh, there are all kind of logical problems with this view that true Christians will persevere in good works or not live in sin for very long or not habitually sin or continually sin. And way back uh, last year, I think we talked about 1 John 3 and the mistranslations there, which Calvinists hang their hat on about where they assume the text is saying, you know, if you're continually sinning or habitually sinning, like some modern translations say, you're not a Christian. Well, first of all, the passages aren't even talking about whether you're a Christian or not. And secondly, habitually and continually are terrible translations. So that, that's my you know, thought, probably more than you wanted to know. But does that help a little bit at all or clarify a little bit? Yeah. Well, I kind of hate to say this now after that <laughs> statement. But going, I, honestly, I'm just going to be honest. I'm struggling with the Galatians passage okay. a little bit where... I mean, in former Bible studies, I've always heard or learned, and now I can't find the word evidence, but the fruit of the Spirit is the evidence of your faith, is the living out of your faith. And Does the text say that? No. So yeah. that's partly why I'm struggling, because it doesn't. But the text does say, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Absolutely. And so... That's a that's a one-time thing at the point of salvation. You take on that mindset, but your actions don't always stay Cor in line. I mean, clearly mine don't. So. Yeah. yeah, so correctly, it's one of the paradoxes of Scripture. If you go to Romans 6, and we actually touched on this briefly Sunday, but in Romans 6, uh, Paul says, Acts, uh, Romans... Paul says this, What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? 
Certainly not. Now, some translations uh, will say, may it never be. The old King James, I think, said, God forbid. The Greek, therefore, certainly not is meganoita. It literally means, you know, may it never be. Not, not, not ever. Uh, whenever you see Paul using that phrase, meganoita, mark it down. He is always rejecting a false conclusion from a correct premise. He's rejecting a false conclusion from a correct premise. So the premise is true. The more you sin, the more grace abounds. Believer, you cannot outsend God. You, you never get to the point where God says, Wow, you've just run out of grace and I'm going to take my eternal salvation away from you and send you to hell. Where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. But that doesn't mean we should go on sinning. Because as I've discussed in many places, there are serious problems with sin. Sin is a terrible enemy and it's an awful uh, foe. And there are all kinds of consequences for the believer and unbeliever alike. And so you never want to sin. It's not a good idea. But notice what he says to your question and your connection to Galatians 5. Verse 3, Or do you not know as many of us were baptized in Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried with him through baptism into death, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father. Even so, we also should walk in newness of life. Skip down to verse 7. For he who has died has been set free from sin. So absolutely, we are dead to sin. Um, but we still have the ability, if we choose to, to resurrect that old man. And, you know, Paul says we should, in verse 11, we should reckon ourselves. That's the first imperative in the book of Romans, by the way. I mean, such a rich book full of doctrinal teaching you get all the way to the middle of chapter six before you come to the first command and what is that command remember you're dead to sin now why would we have to remember that why would we have to reckon ourselves dead to sin right why would we have to con the new translation say consider yourselves dead to sin why because even though we are dead to sin it's possible to forget that and to resurrect that old man and to you know let that old man you know predominate and, that's, and then Paul goes on to describe that in chapter 7, which we already talked about. The new man, the old man. That's why he says in two places in Colossians Ephesians, put on the new man, not the old man. Now, in the text, it's actually an aorist. You have put on the new man, but the implication is because we put on the new man positionally, think back to that dichotomy, positional, practical. In Ephesians and Colossians, when he talks about the new man, he says, you have put on, past tense, the new man. Therefore, don't live like the old man. And uh, Sunday, I used the illustration of an old Barney Fife clip from Andy Griffith where he keeps getting locked in the jail cell. You remember that? And, and that's what it's like when we as believers go back into the enslavement to sin, even though we've been set free. We've been let out. We've been free. Sin no longer reigns in our life. We have the new nature. But we can choose to go back to that to that old nature so but back to galatians 5 um let's, let me get back over there Can you help me with verse 21? yeah i was going to kind of walk through that whole passage so paul basically let me summarize the principle here because it's the same thing that we see in ephesians 5 in fact we'll go to these passages here in a second 
And it's the same thing that we see in 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 6, I think it is. Um, or no, maybe it is 1 Corinthians. Yeah, so we'll, we'll get back to that. Yeah, it's 1 Corinthians 6. So, but we're in Galatians now. So I'll summarize. What he's saying is, the flesh lusts against the spirit, the spirit against the flesh. Since you're alive spiritually, you should live like it. Why would you ever want to live like a hell-bound person? That's really what he's saying. So we know that we know that we know from comparing Scripture to Scripture that our entrance into the kingdom of heaven is not in any way based upon our behavior. So sometimes when you come across puzzling passages, a good rule of, of hermeneutics or a good rule of how you know studying the Scripture is to sort of say, well, I'm not sure yet exactly what he's saying there. I'm going to dive in and do some observation and some comparison and, and really study the text. But I can rule out some things. And for sure, what he's, what he's not saying is that, for example, um, you know, those who are fornicators or idolaters or sorcerers are going to hell automatically. We know that. And, and we also know that for another reason, because notice he says, beginning in verse 19, the works of the flesh are evident. And he kind of starts out with some biggies, which it would be easy for us, and it's very easy for Calvinists especially, to say, oh, see, if you do that, you're going to hell. And, and, of course, they would say, that means you never believe the gospel. But that's not what he's saying, because this, you know, don't stop too soon. He goes all the way through, and he talks about jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions. So before you hastily conclude that fornicators and idolaters are automatically going to hell, you better check your own heart, because who among us hasn't been guilty of selfish ambition, even at this time, right? And by the way, and he, and he goes on to say, and the like. In other words, it's not even a comprehensive list, anything like this. So he's saying that those who are unrighteous positionally and therefore sold under sin and, and, and this is the kind of behavior they produce are not going to inherit the kingdom. But you're not like that. So don't act like that. That's the idea. So it's, it's even clearer in 1 Corinthians 6 and in Ephesians 5. So let's look at that really quickly. Um, 1 Corinthians 6, skip down to verse 9. Um, do, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? He's talking about positional righteousness there. Uh, in fact, uh, let's go ahead and put this uh, back up. So he's thinking, think positional righteousness here. We know that only the justified go to heaven. You have to be justified by faith in order to have peace with God, Romans 5.1. When we place our faith in Christ, he declares us righteous. Romans 3.24, we are justified freely by his grace. That's what we're talking about, positional righteousness. So he starts out by saying, don't you know that the unrighteous aren't going to inherit the kingdom of God? Don't be deceived. And then he lists some examples of the unrighteous. A similar list to what we saw in Galatians, right? But then he comes down to verse 11 and he says, And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, using sanctified there in the sense of positionally, and you were justified. So verses 9 and 11 bookend this passage by contrasting the justified with the unjustified. 
And that's what, that's what we see in Galatians. He's just describing that behavior that is born out of the unrighteous, but it's also born out of the fleshly aspect of a positionally righteous person. So when we get saved, that old man isn't eradicated. Now Calvinists teach that it is. Calvinists don't, they have a, one nature. They don't believe in a dual nature for a believer, which is why they say you must do good works because you have no capacity to do bad works. But, so, but we believe the Bible teaches that when you get saved, the difference between a saved and unsaved is the saved only has the old nature, the, the unsaved I mean, the unsaved only has the old nature, the saved person has the new nature that comes alongside, but it does not replace the old nature. If all we had was a new nature, we would only live righteously. We would never sin. But the very fact that we sometimes sin shows that there's an old man still there rearing his ugly head, right? And so unsaved have only an old man, saved have an old man and a new man in that nature that does this, this struggle. So positionally, we are justified by faith, but practically if we cater to the old man, we're going to look like the old man. If we cater to the new man, i.e. the Spirit of God, we're going to look like the new man. And so these passages, and I'm about to go to Ephesians 5, are contrasting the fruit of the Spirit with the fruit of the flesh, or the old man. But in no way should these passages be taken to say that that fruit automatically identifies whether you're saved or unsaved. It just identifies whether you're catering to one or the other. Right? So Ephesians is even uh, clearer in Ephesians chapter 5. Begin, let's just start out in verse 1. Therefore be imitators of God as dear children. Again, that's a command. Why would he command something if it were not possible to disobey it? Right. So the fact is, as a dear child of God, verse 1, you might not always be imitators of God. We might be imitators of Satan, you know, as John, 1 John 3 says. But it's a command. As dear children, walk in love, as Christ also has loved us and given himself for us, offering uh, an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. But fornication and all uncleanness or covetousness, let it not even be named among you, as is fitting for saints. It's, it's, it's natural and normal for a believer to cater to the Spirit and live like a, uh, you know, a believer and look like a believer. It's natural for our practice in life to reflect our position in Christ. It's fitting, that's what he says. But clearly it's not guaranteed or he wouldn't be saying what he's saying right here. Neither filthiness nor foolish talking nor coarse jesting, which are not fitting, same thing, but rather giving thanks. Now here's where people lose their theology and, and get off base. For this you know, that no fornicator or unclean person or covetous man who is an idolater has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Again, he's not saying that because that's their behavior, they're going to hell. Now, that would fly in the face of, again, 160 passages that say again and again that our salvation is contingent on receiving a free gift, not performing a certain behavior or avoiding a certain other behavior. But he's, it's going to become clear as he goes on. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience. There it is. The sons of disobedience is the ones he was refer are the ones he was referring to in verse five. 
He just is characterizing them as covetousness, fornicators, and whatever. But sons of disobedience are contrasted here with you. Verse 7 says, Therefore you do not be partakers with them. So you've got a, a them and an us. Okay, We should do things that are fitting for the we, the Christians, not act like the them, which are the ones that are fornicators and covetousness and are under the wrath of God. By the way, the wrath of God always and only applies to unbelievers. Believers are never going to face the wrath of God. Jesus said, if you believe in me, you've passed from death to life and shall never come into judgment. So, so we know that he's contrasting your believers with unbelievers. Now, look at verse 8. For you were once darkness, continuing this contrast, just using a different metaphor, but now you are light in the world, so walk as children of the light. For the fruit of the Spirit is in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. Same phrase for the Spirit that he used in Galatians 5. Right? So have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but expose them. So if in every case, if you look at it closely, there's definitely a contrast going on. And it, it, the contrast is between the hell-bound and the heaven-bound. But he's not saying if you act like the hell-bound, that means you are hell-bound. He's just saying don't act like this group. Act like this group. Since you're alive in the Spirit, Galatians 5.26, let us walk in the Spirit. So I, I totally get that uh, in some cases these passages at first blush, if, especially if you don't really dive into the context, can sound like, Paul is saying, well, if you do this, you're going to hell. But again, that would be a contradiction in Scripture because we don't go to heaven or hell based on what we do. Does that make sense? Any questions about that? Yeah, Sally. Um, I'm a little confused on the righteousness. Okay. I've always been taught that our righteousness is the righteousness of Christ. Correct. So how does that make us righteous just through faith and in Christ? Yes. Does it fall down to us as like an umbrella over us? What is it? Correct. So uh, the question is, you know, the relationship between Christ's righteousness and our righteousness. So the biblical term is imputation. That when we, by faith, believe in Christ, we are justified. Look at Romans 5.1. I think I've quoted it a couple of times. But... Um, Therefore, Romans 5.1, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now he's going to go on throughout chapter 5 in a very important passage and talk about how in Adam, sin was imputed to us. So we're all sinners. Wherefore by one man sin entered the world and death by sin. So death passed upon all men and all have sinned. I think I, that's basically a quote. But the second Adam, Christ by faith in him, imputes righteousness to us. So imputes is one of those kind of biblical words that we, we don't use it all the time in, uh, in common language, but it just means credited to our account. So if you think, you, you, all, you kind of talked about a, what, what, did you, what metaphor did you use? A umbrella? An umbrella, right. So however it helps you to conceptualize it, the point is your very identity prior to trusting in Christ, is identified with Adam in sin and on the road to hell under the penalty and curse of sin. 
when we trust in Jesus Christ and Him alone for salvation, all that goes away, and instead our identity is now in Christ. And that's a term that Paul uses again and again to describe our position. So that's what I'm trying to sort of explain with this chart on the left-hand side. And, and the, the concepts here are positional versus practical. Positional means in, your, in, in, your, in Christ. You are positionally in the family of God. And if you think back to that series we did, a couple of lessons on the family of God versus fellowship with, with God. <clears throat> I talked about how once you're in the family of God, you can never get out. But a better analogy maybe would be to think of it in physical terms. You know, my children, you know, a simple DNA test will prove they're, they're my children. And that's an empirical fact. I mean, nothing can change that. They might go off the deep end. They might try to disown me. They might go become a prodigal, God forbid. But it, no matter how much they might declare, I'm not a Hickson. Well, a simple DNA test is going to prove them wrong. Spiritually speaking, the minute we place our faith in Christ, our spiritual DNA changes, and we are in Christ positionally, and nothing can change that. Now, next issue, next dis, you know, different discussion, right hand of the chart. Life, every day, we wake up. Do we always act like Christ? Do we always perform perfectly? Of course not, because we have that old man. And so the whole point of this chart is to show you that our practice in life, practical righteousness, think practice, behavior, does not always conform to our position in Christ. So back to my analogy, the same thing might true of my be true of my kids. I might, if one of my children misbehaves, I would say, you know, don't do that. You know, you're not acting like a Hickson. Don't, don't, no Hickson would do something like that, you know. In other words, appealing to the pridefulness of our, of our family, right? Well, in Christ, when we sin, we're not acting like Christ. It's an offense to a holy God. We're not conforming to the image of Christ, which is the sanctification process over time. So, you, when you, in answer to your very first comment about being confused about righteousness, I think the confusion goes away if we make sure we understand there are two kinds of righteousness, positional and practical. And you have to, when you come to the scriptures, you have to always ask yourself, is he talking about positional righteousness or practical righteousness here? So I will always be positionally righteous. That's right. You will always be positionally righteous. Nothing can change that. The moment you placed your faith in Christ, it happened instantly. But you're right. You will not always be practically righteousness. I mean, if I had to pick anyone in this room who I thought would always be practically righteous, it's you. But I can just know from human nature that you're probably not just because you're human, right? So I'll just stipulate that absent evidence, you probably sometimes aren't righteous because we're all not righteous, right? <laughs> What did you say? You didn't even think of me. No, no, I totally, I, I, I've got you for a separate analogy. Uh, we'll talk about that later. So, um, so, so that's a, I mean, that's a, it's, it's a great question, and it's something I've been talking about for 30 years. Many, uh, obviously, many Bible teachers talk about this positional versus practical. But it, it, it comes up again and again because it is so difficult to grasp it really is especially because we've been taught again and again and again that if you're not living a godly life you're probably not saved i used to have a folder back in the day before 
technology when you had literal file cabinets. And I, at one time, I had seven file cabinets full of my notes at, my, at their peak, literally seven, four drawer file cabinets. But I used to have one file that was basically half of a whole drawer where I would keep examples of false gospel presentations. And in there were several examples, and I can think of one right now, where I was at a conference or a sermon or somewhere hearing a guy preach, and he literally handed out a quiz to take. And the title of the quiz was, How to Know if You're Really a Christian. And then it was like 10 statements, and each of them you were to answer. It was on a Likert scale. You know what a Likert scale is? A, um, one to five. Yeah, sort of like a one to five. All, you know, always, sometimes, usually, rarely, never, that kind of a thing, right? And it was, um, it was things like, I pray regularly, or I share Christ, or I give 10% to the church, or I never cuss, or it was all these behavioral things, 10 of them. And then you flipped it over, and if it, there was a key. And it literally said, if you scored between a 45 and a 50, you're saved. If you scored less than 45 but more than 40, you're probably saved. If you scored less than 40, you're definitely not saved. And, that, and that's the kind of teaching that I grew up with and that many people grow up with. And it's, it's owing to 400 years of Calvinist influence that suggests that real faith always manifests itself in real righteousness. And if you're not real, really righteous, you were never really saved. And that's a horrible teaching. It, it consigns people to a lifetime of guilt and, and doubt and am I really saved? And it's just, it's just horrible. So, uh, but, but if we can get past that hurdle and really let the text speak where it speaks and understand the, connect, the contrast between positional righteousness and practical righteousness, it just will free you up. And, and you know, some people say, well, overemphasizing grace just encourages people to sin. No, it doesn't. I mean, that's, a, that's a, such a logical... That's like saying, you know, having life preservers on a ship encourages people to jump into the ocean. <laughs> no, gra grace is, is there to cover sin, not to entice sin. Who, who would do that, right? You know, I have a fire extinguisher in my kitchen sink. I don't go starting fires in my house, right? I mean, it's just illogical completely. Grace does not encourage sin. It covers sin. And as Paul said in Galatians 6, should we continue to sin just because grace abounds? Of course not. And no one would think of doing that. Um, so we're just about out of time, but any, you know, when we did, I don't think we even got through, did we? Let me just see. Because if we did, that'd be a nice stopping point. No, no, we didn't even, we didn't come close. So we'll pick up with uh, contract and look at some other passages of Scripture and wrap that up next time. And then we'll move on to number three. But any closing comments or questions before we finish? The Ayers kids were, un, were disappointingly quiet tonight. I always love their questions because I, I have a 45-minute drive home when I, which I contemplate how I should have answered them because they're always so <laughs> profound and difficult. But uh, anyway. I had, I had a few that weren't relating to, to salvation or anything, so I was going to... I was going to talk to you about them afterwards. Okay. Well, thank you for restraining yourself. and We will, we will talk about it afterwards because I love your questions. I really do. Anybody else?
Awesome. Okay, well, let's uh, dismiss, and let me close this in prayer, and then we'll dismiss. Lord, thank you for our time together tonight, and Lord, what a blessing it is to have your word, even though uh, we can never reach the bottom of it. It is such a rich resource for us to understand everything we need for life and godliness. And so, Lord, we thank you for this time, and just pray that uh, you'd be with us now as we depart. In Jesus' name, amen.